Hey there, it's Alex. Just a really quick announcement before we get started here. We were totally booked out for our Cost of Glory Rome retreat this summer, 2024, June 30th through July 7th. But we've managed to make some adjustments and we've found room for another one or two slots. So if you're interested in visiting the great sites of Rome, discussing the merits of Rome's greatest men with me, and also improving as a speaker with the insights of ancient rhetoric and a whole lot of live practice and discussion, check out the retreat website at costofglory.com retreat. Hope to see you in Rome. Okay, now for the episode. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Cost of Glory where it is our mission to retell the lives of the great Greek and Roman heroes in order to sharpen ourselves for the present. We take Plutarch as our guide. A brief epilogue today to the story of Marius, and I'm going to propose three things that we can take away today from the life of Marius. That's right, you heard it here. The top three lessons for leaders from the life of Gaius Marius. But seriously, though, first, a brief epilogue. What happened to the Roman Republic? after Marius died? And this question is really covered pretty well in other biographies. Sertorius is one that we've done already, and Sulla will be coming very soon. But just to round off the story for you here, conveniently in one place, well, here's what happened. Marius died in 86 BC, and at that point, Cinna became the most powerful politician in Rome, the de facto leader of Marius's political group, the Populares, or the Marians, as historians often call them. And Cinna was re-elected as consul for four successive years, and he pushed through some reforms, including his Italian voter registration law. And for three years, Rome was relatively peaceful. But that was because Sulla was still in the east, fighting his war with Mithridates. And after brutally sacking Athens... Sulla ended up making some progress in Asia and winning some concessions from Mithridates, but he ended the war with a treaty rather than a decisive victory, and he sort of left Mithridates alive to terrorize another generation of Roman generals, including Lucullus and Pompey the Great, who are featured in Plutarch's biographies. So in 83, Sulla comes back to Italy to take back the city of Rome from his enemies, and Cinna is actually dead by that point. He was assassinated. And the Romans ended up waging an all-out war against each other on many fronts all throughout Italy when Sulla returned. It was a huge, bloody civil war. The Marians were the losers in that war. Many of the Marians were killed or executed after surrendering. Marius' own son held out against one of Sulla's commanders in a siege for many months. But the walls of that town were eventually breached, and Marius Jr. committed suicide before Sulla's troops could capture him. He was in his early 30s. And so in a great bloody battle, the Battle of the Colline Gate, as it was called, in the following year, in 82 BC, Sulla took back Rome. And Sulla, when he got back into power, well, let's just say he made what Marius and Cinna had done look polite and gentlemanly. Sertorius, however, Marius's former lieutenant, escaped to Spain and mounted a powerful resistance there, and he defied general after general, often using guerrilla tactics, and he held out and formed a rebel state in Spain that became a rallying point for Marius's party, or the remnants of it, and it lasted an entire ten years. 
And at this point, Marius on some level became a kind of symbol of resistance to the sullen regime that was dominating Rome for a decade or so after Sulla retook the city. And this pro-Sulla conservative regime, partly because they were trying to justify their brutality in the reprisals and the necessity of bloody civil war that they had fought, and partly because they were still fighting a war with Sertorius until a full 14 years after Marius died, well, they kept up their anti-Marius propaganda efforts with a lot of urgency and vigor in this period. But then, after Sulla died in 78, and especially after Sertorius fell in 72 BC, it became somewhat safer for people to express positive sentiments about Marius in polite Roman society. Julius Caesar was beginning his rise to power around this time, and in a famous incident, he paraded his affiliation with Marius proudly. There's a famous story about this that we've told in the comparison between Sertorius and Eumenes. It's also in the life of Caesar, so we'll get to that soon. And Caesar had actually married Cinna's daughter when he was still alive. That was his first wife. And of course, while we're talking about legacy, there was Cicero in the next generation, the other famous new man consul from Arpinum, who was a great admirer of Marius. And Cicero praises Marius frequently in his own writings from the 60s to the 40s BC, and you really get a sense from Cicero's writings, many of them are political speeches, trial speeches, delivered before many prominent senators and leaders of the people. Marius was actually a hugely popular figure in the next generation. He was still seen as a hero, which explains why the first Roman emperor, Augustus, would erect that statue of him in his forum, the statue with the inscription that we began the first episode of the life of Marius with. Among modern Roman historians, Marius, with his recruitment policies and his land grants, he's famous for reforming the army in a way that made it easier for politician generals like himself and like Sulla and later Pompey and Caesar to recruit armies for themselves who were more loyal to their commanders than to the city of Rome. And he also set precedents for using tribunician powers to effectively operate a dictatorship in the garb of a constitutional republic. And by so doing, he paved the way for even more destructive civil wars in the next generation, and eventually the permanent takeover of the state by one man who would become known as the emperor. So there's the brief epilogue. Now, even if you're ultimately going to take Plutarch's side and that's also Rutilius Rufus's perspective and Posidonius of Rhodes's perspective too. In short, if you take the perspective of most ancient philosophers and say, Marius was a man ruined by his own colossal ambition, and that's a freebie by the way, I won't count that in the three takeaways, still, you can't deny that Marius was a very successful leader for much of his life. And so there are some things from his leadership style that you might want to adapt to your own. First of all, Marius is a very interesting paradigm for the outsider who makes it into the inner circle of a ruling elite or political club. It would be easy, on the one hand, to look at the final years of Marius and dismiss him as being a sort of pariah or outcast. But in fact, in 88 BC, when the war with Mithridates broke out, if Marius had just left well enough alone 
and allowed Sulla to take charge of the war without challenging him, if Marius had simply retired from public life then, Marius would have been remembered as a dignified elder statesman, probably, a great man who rose from obscurity to join the upper ranks of the Roman Senate. He married into a great family. His son did too. Marius had arrived, and Marius had led the Romans to some stunning victories, Jugurtha, the Teutones, the Cimbri, and he made some very measurable progress in working on the greatest political problem of the day that was integrating the Italians into the Roman system. And unfortunately, he didn't make enough progress soon enough, but he did make some progress. And so here's the takeaway. Marius shows that sometimes in order to join them, you have to beat them first. There are some groups that you cannot be admitted to as an outsider unless you demonstrate some sort of extraordinary competence and even beat them at their own game. You can't just match them. You have to outdo them. And many leaders in history have also had to face this problem. Themistocles, Constantine, Lincoln. Marius learned the rules, and he played within established political norms. Sometimes he stretched the precedents to extreme levels, but ultimately he beat the senators at their own game. And they accepted him into their ranks, grudgingly at first. But eventually, he won many allies in the Senate. So, if you want to join an exclusive club, break into some established elite, be prepared to outwork them and even challenge them directly before they will accept you. You may find that your position is precarious even after that, though. Another takeaway that we've seen again and again in Marius And this is true of almost any great leader. But Marius inspired his followers by his personal example. But there's a qualification here that I'll get to in a second. So on his military campaigns, Marius would dig with his men in the trenches, eat their food, stay up later, get up earlier. And even when he was getting ready to command the war with Mithridates after he stole it from Sulla, he was exercising in the parade grounds in the Campus Martius. And there's actually one famous story about Marius's toughness and indifference to pain that we didn't tell. As an old man, he had varicose veins in his legs, which made walking uncomfortable, and they were unsightly. And some physician told him that he could get rid of those for Marius if he wanted. The surgery for varicose veins in those days was done with a knife and a little hooked instrument and no anesthetic. It was a famously painful procedure. Marius decided to give it a go. And you were expected to allow yourself to be tied down, bite down on a stick, probably have some strong drink. And Marius refused all of this. And he sat there for hours without flinching or making a sound as the doctor worked on his leg. And at the end of the procedure, on one leg, he decided that The pain inflicted exceeded the pain saved by the operation, and he decided to forego the other leg and keep half his money. So that's kind of a story about Marius projecting a certain image of himself as a leader. Now, maybe it's easier to lead by personal example in some contexts than others. It's obvious how a general might do this, leading his subordinates, But Marius had trouble bringing some of his own faction into line in political life. Saturninus and Glaucia are the most egregious failures to inspire by his own example of restraint. 
Or maybe they were even just imitating some other aspects of his leadership quality, some of his earlier demagogic moves. So if we say that this was one of Marius's signature leadership styles that he led by example, we have to admit that he didn't always do it with great consistency or foresight into the precedence that he was setting. And there's a lot of reason to suspect that some of Marius's leading by personal example was primarily showmanship. Did he really sleep less than all the men every night and work harder than them every day? Let's be realistic. As a leader, you have to have a sustainable schedule. You can't lead for very long if you work yourself to death. And Marius, as we know from other sources and events, was very good at creating a narrative about himself, appearing the way he wanted to appear to the right audiences. So perhaps, to be a little cynical, if you want to lead like Marius, the most important thing to focus on is the image of the leader that you create in the minds of your followers. Marius, though, was famously crafty. For most of us, it will be easier and much more productive if we just focus on truly being the person we are trying to project to our followers. And these questions about the trustworthiness of Marius's image that he projected is kind of related to the third takeaway. And the third takeaway for leadership from Gaius Marius is, no surprise, a negative one. Be honest with your own countrymen, at least. Marius, according to Plutarch, regarded lying as part of a man's excellence and ability. And this is something that you see in some of the Greek heroes, like Odysseus. And it's an attribute recommended at times by many political realists, like Thrasymachus in Plato's Republic, or like Machiavelli, the Florentine statesman. And Marius allows us to see some of the effects of this dishonesty in action. Marius was a famous dissimulator. He was extremely hard to read. He was tricky with Metellus Numidicus on many occasions. He was tricky with Saturninus and Glaucia, with the Roman people, with Sulla even. He consistently hid his intentions unless it suited him to reveal them. And this is extremely valuable for a general on the battlefield, as we could see with his successes in war, and as we've also seen with Sertorius and Eumenes in this podcast, but it translates very unevenly into peacetime political life and situations where leadership is built on long-term relationships and a reputation for trust. I think the most damning thing that you could say about Marius is that he never really commanded the lasting affection of the best people in Rome. We see him sort of using the metelli and placating them at turns and then casting them off again as it suited him, in the way that he abandoned Saturninus and Glaucia when they pushed too far in politics, getting violent, well, it made sense, but it signaled to potential allies and even young up-and-comers that Marius was a patron to be handled with care and couldn't necessarily be relied upon to stick up for you in a pinch. It depended on whether it suited his interests. Even many of Marius's respectable allies, like Catullus and Marcus Antonius and other somewhat distant members of the Caesar family who were politically prominent at this time, they abandoned Marius when the going got tough, just like they suspected he would do to them. Was it any surprise? And the list could go on of 
men of outstanding moral character and reputation for competence, who personally loathed Marius and rejected him. Rutilius Rufus, Posidonius, Mucius Scaevola, why go on? And this fact may have something to do with why the executions and reprisals got out of hand when Marius retook the city. He hadn't systematically surrounded himself with men of restraint and honor. Quite the opposite, in some cases. Although there were, certainly, decent men included among his associates, even they ended up tarred by association in the eyes of posterity. Well, much more could be said. If you've got thoughts, write to me at alex at ancientlifecoach.com or reach out to Ancient Life Coach on Twitter. Don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you like this. It really helps us make the podcast better and help people find us. Until next time, stay strong, stay ancient. This is Alex Petkus.